morning. See, we, we've been affected, I think, by spring break a little bit. Uh, we homeschoolers, we forget that, uh, that these things happen. You know, for, but, uh, yeah, let's keep all of our traveling families in prayer this week as they uh, seek out adventures and have a good time. This, uh, this morning, we are sort of transitioning in our study of Matthew from looking at grains and seed and planting to the end result of all of that grain, which is bread. Uh, so we have some stories uh, about eating, which is good for me. Uh, I, liked, I like the gardening. Uh, I really like the eating part. So getting into these stories about eating is, uh, is a metaphor that I appreciate. Matthew is going to relate to us two stories of a miraculous meal, a miraculous feast, in addition to some other bread-related references. And what's really important about all of these stories is that we take a look, that we recognize who is being offered this meal and who actually receives it. So remember, you know, last week we were looking primarily at the parable of the sower and one of the core messages, of course, of that parable is that different people are going to receive the gospel of Jesus in different ways. There's going to be different responses. And we see that really through the narrative of Matthew's gospel. As Jesus is going out and he's teaching these messages to different individuals and crowds and, and, and having these different responses, people are having different responses to this good news about the kingdom. And sometimes the gospel of the kingdom is met with great joy. And other times it's met with a certain amount of, of ignorance. Sometimes it's met with rejection. And of course, with the Pharisees and others like them, the gospel is actually met with dissent. And that's an important distinction. And when I say dissent, I think it's really important we understand that we're not talking about having questions or having doubts. Actually, having good questions and good doubts is a wonderful place to begin a journey of faith. When we have sincere questions, when we're unsure of things and we look deeper into Jesus Christ, uh, I, I have confidence that when we do that sincerely, we will find that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And so those doubts are, are not necessarily a bad thing. Bad if we hold on to them, but not bad if we explore them further and, and come to terms with them. That's not what we're really talking about when we talk about dissent. Dissent, as is practiced in these passages by the Pharisees, dissent is the rejection of what God is doing. It's the rejection of godly things. And not only the rejection, but it is a rejection with an intent to cause others to reject those things. And so the questions come up in a way that it is, it is really intended to derail Jesus in his ministry. And I just want you to keep that context in mind as we look at this first story. This is from Matthew 14, starts with verse 13. We're going to read kind of a long passage here to begin with. When Jesus were, heard uh, what had happened, he withdrew by boat pri privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus 
landed and saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Pretty cool miracle. 5,000 men, uh, perhaps 15 or even maybe even 20,000 people total. And they've got uh, a pittance of food. And Jesus, of course, takes this food, blesses it, starts breaking it, and it just sort of multiplies. And by the end, everybody has eaten their fill. And 12 baskets of leftovers come back from these few loaves and, and fish. It's a cool miracle. It's a cool story. But it also has a deeper significance. It has a deeper significance because bread in the wilderness is a very clear reference to manna. So when Jesus is with these people and he is providing them with this meal of bread when they're out in the countryside, what they're going to recognize is the relationship between what's happening now and what happened in the wilderness. You remember this story. God frees Israel from captivity in, in Egypt, across the Red Sea on dry land. The sea comes crashing back down, takes out Pharaoh's army. They are on the other side of the sea. They're in the wilderness of Midian. They are now safe from the Egyptian army but they have no provisions. Now, if you've had any wilderness training, you know that one person can find enough food in the wilderness to survive. Maybe even a handful of people can find enough food in the wilderness to survive. But a whole nation full of people are not going to be able to glean enough food from the wilderness in order to survive. So cue the complaining. The people of God just recently freed by all these miraculous actions of God, are now whining to Moses, why did you bring us here? Why did you bring us here? We're going to die in this desert. We might have been slaves, we might have been in, in captivity back in Egypt, but at least we had food to eat. At least we weren't going to starve to death. And so, what does God do? God provides for them manna from heaven. So we still don't really completely understand what it is, but it shows up every morning, and it's bread-like, or it can be prepared as bread. It's this miraculous meal that just sort of shows up. God provides for a whole nation of people in the middle of the desert, out in the wilderness, with this manna. Manna, thereafter, is the ultimate symbol of God's provision. 
the symbol for how God takes care of his people. It's, an, it's the ultimate symbol because it just sort of shows up out of nowhere. You know, later on he's going to provide birds so they have some meat. They start complaining because they're tired of manna, of course. And he sends birds, but birds are always there. Manna just sort of rains down from heaven, comes from nowhere. It's just there all of a sudden. It's this ultimate symbol of God's provision. And so you think about that. This is, this, is a, this is a symbol, this is a story that all these people are very, very familiar with as they're sitting out here in the countryside with Jesus, listening to him talk and watching him heal people. And people are awaiting a Messiah. They're waiting for a deliverer. They're waiting for somebody who's going to free them from oppression and, and, and do all these fantastic things. They're waiting for a man from God. And Jesus may not be what they're expecting, but man, Jesus is doing some stuff that's hard to ignore. Jesus is healing people. Jesus is speaking with authority. And then something happens with almost unmistakable prophetic significance. They're out in the countryside. They have no provisions. Nobody's made any arrangements for how we're going to feed all of these people. And Jesus provides them with a miraculous meal. Who is the God who provides a meal in the desert? It is Yahweh. This is, it's, you know, if you, if, you, if you follow that sort of silly social media trend, tell me without telling me. Have you seen any of these posts? Supposed to tell me something about yourself without actually saying it? This is what Jesus is doing. I'm going to tell you who I am without actually telling you who I am. You want to know if I'm from God? What does your God do when his people are out in the wilderness without food? He feeds them. Just the way I'm going to feed you right now. I love the way that he turns to the disciples, asks them these questions, and then he says to them, they don't need to go away. We don't have to send them away. It's like Jesus is saying to them, all right, boys, Watch and learn. And what is it that they're going to learn? They're going to learn that where God is at work, all things are possible. And that is a very exciting lesson. It's a very exciting lesson because it remains true today. Where God is at work, all things are possible. And yet it's a lesson that we often forget. I will confess to you that I often forget this lesson. I know it up here. Sometimes it misses my heart. I, I'm like everybody else. I get discouraged. I have a hard time sometimes connecting with the hope that I know that is in Christ. I know it. I sometimes miss it. Sometimes the enemy is whispering in my ear. It's all pointless. Why are you bothering what are, you, what, what, what are you doing with your life, man? Lisa and I and the kids, we came out here with a very different set of dreams. I had no notion that I would be doing today with you this morning what I'm, what I'm doing with you today. The enemy's often whispering in my ear. 
Ah, maybe you should have pursued your dream. Maybe, maybe you're just messing up. But here's the truth. Where God is at work, all things are possible, and God is at work. This is a very exciting time at St. James Christian Church. There's so much that we're learning, and, and, we're, and we're really sort of coming to terms with God's mission in the future of this town and, and, and in this fellowship. And I, and I can't comment on all of that because we've got multiple ministry leaders here who are, who are working hard to, to bring new things online. But I'm going to take a minute here and tell you some of the things that God's put on my heart to be working on. I knew that we would be coming into Revelation after we finished Matthew. Revelation, the series I have not taught in quite some time. Recently read an article, actually, that said uh, in, in Christian churches in America today, Revelation is one of the most requested topics, and it's one of the least preached. Why? Because we don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> it's confusing. It's difficult. And there's all this teaching out there that's, you know, sort of quasi-scriptural. People, people teach through Revelation with great confidence in their personal view, and that's Kind of sometimes the only time that Revelation is taught is when we want to use it as a proof text for what we believe about end times. But it came to the conviction that we, we not only needed to spend time in Revelation, but we, we needed to go at it entirely. And so we've embraced the challenge. We're not only teaching the sermon series, we've got a related class. Our Thrive groups are going to be on a similar topic. It's an intensive, all-hands-on-deck effort to focus on the hope of the kingdom that comes from this mysterious book. That would be enough. It would certainly be enough to keep me busy. But it's not all that God's asking us to do, I think. And so we're introducing... Uh, in addition to the youth and family retreat that Caleb and I are working on uh, right now, mostly Caleb, I'm just kind of pitching in where I can, we're also working very hard on something we're calling Honor Club for this summer, which is kind of a day camp model that we're wanting to do with some of our young people, it teaches, teaches them about living with honor, teaches them about showing honor. As field trips and funness and silliness and service projects and conversations with missionaries and, and other kingdom servants. And it's all about our young people learning that they can be participants right now in the mission of Jesus Christ in this community. And on top of all our ongoing efforts, our small church network that we're still working on, our guest relations ministry, our online, our social media, our live stream. The dreams, the dreams that I have personally let go have been replaced with a new dream. I've talked to you a little bit about this concept of creating a missions school here a missions training program, an internship, and students from across the state and beyond can come here 
learn about what it is to work in a small church, what it is to work in rural ministry, what it is to be a missionary in that setting. I got to tell you that Lisa and I are convicted enough about this that we've decided we've decided we're going to turn our home into a kingdom builders mission base. It could be that place where students will come, live, work side by side with us, practice intense discipleship, and become missionaries for life. Now, I share all of this with you with some trepidation. It is intimidating. I am intimidated by what I believe God is calling me personally and us collectively to do. And I recognize that it all looks and feels impossible. And I look at my own situation. I say, how on earth can I even find the time? How will I live? How will I support my household? How will I change my home into what it needs to be in order to fulfill this purpose? And of course, there's the ever-present question of if we embrace these things, how do we populate them? How do we staff them? Where do we find the people? And in spite of all of that doubt, as we have given ourselves to these dreams, we have watched God begin to provide answers. So what has He done? He keeps sending us these people who their first week here volunteer to serve. He keeps sending us people. Now, not, we, and we have been praying for help. We have been praying for workers. And God's been sending them, but not only has been, He been sending them, He's been sending us workers with a passion. He's been sending us workers with the will to serve the kingdom and its needs before their own needs. He's been sending us people with experience and skills specific sometimes to what we need. And then just recently, just this last month, the church received an extremely generous donation out of which the leadership of the church has agreed to pay me two extra days a week to work on these things so that I can live, <laughs> so that I can survive, and so that we can get these, these things done. All that curriculum can be written. What does all that mean? It means that when God is at work, He turns problems into possibilities. He feeds 15,000 hungry people. Not a problem for God. And then what does Jesus do as if to uh, emphasize his point? Takes a walk on water. Then what happens next? Matthew 15, 1 and 2. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, how do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, let, let, let's just make this clear. Their question is not a question of hygiene. This is, this is not about germs. This is about ceremonial washing. The tradition is that before the meal, you have this ceremonial wash. It doesn't matter if your hands are already clean. You've got you to wash them. 
Now, the way that Matthew gives us this, the chronology that Matthew gives us, sort of suggests that maybe they're even referring to this miraculous feeding of 5,000 men, 15 or 20,000 people. That would fit really well with how these folks think, right? You just fed 15,000 people, Jesus, miraculously, but they didn't wash their hands. Mm, mm, mm. Shame on you. This is how dissent works. Understand that if God turns problems into possibilities, dissent turns godly possibilities into problems. Did you notice that the dissenters always pose their questions as if they are a moral imperative? But that's not really what's going on. This is not about morality. It has far less to do with righteousness than it has to do with self-interest and control. They are rejecting Jesus because he doesn't fit their expectations. Jesus responds to them this way. He says in verse 11, What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth That is what defiles them. In other words, Jesus says, what comes from the heart reveals exactly what we have received. You see, God provided manna for all of Israel, but that doesn't mean that all of Israel received from God his word and his truth. We are all able to receive from God the good gifts that he pours out on us as as human beings. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we have received his word into our heart and that we can speak from the heart his word within. Jesus said uh, before he even begins his ministry, when he's out being tempted in the wilderness, he says, man cannot live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is the real food. This is what it's really about. And Jesus says, look, skipping your tradition, your little ceremonial washing, that's not what defiles you. If what comes from your mouth is vile, if what's coming from your heart is defiled, the whole body is defiled. That is the spirit of dissent. It not only rejects what God is doing, it compels others to reject what God is doing. And so what happens next is really deeply prophetic Because Jesus travels from there to Tyre and Sidon. He goes into Gentile territory. And there he's approached by a Canaanite woman who's seeking a healing for her daughter. It says in in Matthew 15, starting with verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Now, we read this story. It feels really harsh. Man, Jesus, whoa, dogs, come on. But we have to remember that Jesus chose to be in this territory. This is, this is Gentile Canaanite territory he's wandering into. He chooses to be there. 
And we have to wonder what the tone is. It's one of the things we miss when we're reading the text. What is the tone in which Jesus says these things? I have to imagine that his tone is provocative, maybe even a little bit playful. Because the word he uses here for dog is not like wild dogs running in the street, which was the usual insult. The word he uses for dog is like small dog or puppy, a family pet. And that's how she responds. She says, even the pet under the table will be happy to receive crumbs from the master's table. She didn't even argue with Jesus. She recognizes that Jesus is a Jewish Messiah who's come with a primary mission to Jewish people. She says, I'm not asking to be at the family table. I'm asking just to be under the family table and to receive the leftovers. You see, those without a sense of entitlement are freed to be grateful. And we feel entitled, honestly, we're not grateful about anything, even when we receive it. But when we don't have that entitlement, we're just freed to be grateful. We recognize how much that Christ actually does for us. I think this kind of corresponds here with a parable that Jesus is going to give in Matthew chapter 22, a parable that probably you know well, where a master throws a wedding feast and he sends out all these invitations and all the invitations are rejected. And Jesus says some, some of those who are receiving the invitations, they even uh, grab the messengers, they grab the servants and they abuse them and kill them, which um, even in rude society is a little bit of an extreme response to receiving a wedding invitation. I'm, I'm betting that none of you have committed homicide in response to a wedding invitation that you didn't want, where you didn't want to attend the wedding. This is a very, very clear allusion to Israel and the way that it's treated its prophets and really the way that it's going to treat Jesus. Sent out the invitations and they're not only rejected, but they kill the messenger. So the invited are rejected, and the rejected are invited. And that's what this foray into Canaan is about. Why does he go to Tyre and Sidon? Because he's just illustrated how his own people, the leaders of his own people, are going to reject him. And so now he begins to plant seeds now. We think of the ministry to the Gentiles starting much later. We see it happen in Acts. But this is Jesus laying the foundation for that ministry right here in the midst of his own. Those who feel entitled to God's salvation, those who feel entitled to provision, to God's work, and to God's mission, are actually the least likely to receive it. And so what does Jesus do from there? He continues around the eastern side of the sea. He continues into Gentile territory. This time he goes to the Decapolis area. And again, he finds himself out in the countryside, out in the wilderness, this time with 4,000 men, maybe 12 or 15,000 people. And in Matthew 15, 32, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, 
where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? Huh. I wonder. Now, let me just point something out here. First of all, one of the things that this passage says is very different from the other feeding. All right? We fed 5,000 Hebrew people, Hebrew men and their families and In that instance, it all happens in a day. By the end of that first day, the disciples are like, we need to send these people home so they can eat. These Gentiles have been with Jesus three days, apparently fasting for three days so they can spend time with him. And then when Jesus himself raises the question of what are these folks going to eat, this is what he's saying. He said, we send them now. They haven't eaten for days. If we send them off home like this, they'll pass out along the way. And his disciples, huh, who have seen him heal people, walk on water, and feed 5,000 men and their families with a few loaves of bread, say what to him? Where could we possibly get enough bread to feed these people. Can we understand here that humanity has a very short memory for provision? That as many times as God provides for us, we always think it's the last time. We always think that that's probably not going to happen again. God was good to us that once, but, you know, what are you going to do? No matter how we have seen God at work, we always end up back at ourselves, thinking about what we're capable of, thinking about what resources we have to bring to bear. It's no longer about God's provision. It's about us. It's about our vision, our capacities, our resources. Ultimately, it's about whether or not we are in control. And of course, Jesus repeats his miracle, this time collecting seven baskets of leftovers. After this, he returns to Jewish territory. He goes onto the west side of Galilee. And the Pharisees there approach him again, this time demanding a sign to prove his credentials. You've got to love these guys. You've got to love these. I mean, look at everything that's happened. Well, anybody could feed 15,000 people once. I mean, twice. But give us a sign. We just need to know that you're the real thing. In Matthew 16, 2 and 3, he replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. See the irony here? Jesus is healing people. He's feeding people. Dissent ignores the truth and continues to demand proof. The signs of God's work are present. They are abundant. All they have to do is open their eyes and see them. All they have to do is look. They manage to minimize those things and keep 
after Jesus to prove his point. And Jesus says, essentially, this is pointless. There's no point in trying to convince you. If you you cannot interpret the signs that you already have, I'm certainly not going to give you additional signs, except, he says, for the sign of Jonah. We'll get into that next week. It's pointless because dissent will always vilify the things of God. Dissent will always vilify the servants of God in order to elevate itself. Dissent secretly, sometimes not so secretly, roots for the failure of God's plan in order to validate its own opposition to God's plan. And so Jesus warns his disciples against what he calls the yeast of the Pharisees. And the disciples, true to form, can't figure out what he's talking about. They start arguing amongst themselves. Maybe, I think maybe it's because we didn't bring any bread. That's quite a, quite a leap. The yeast of the Pharisees, I think, I think he means that we didn't bring any bread. You see how, how thick we are as human beings? These guys watched Jesus feed 15,000 people, and then they watched him feed 12,000 people, and then they're worried about what we're going to eat right now. This is not a problem for God. It's only a problem for them. Jesus warns his disciples against the yeast of the Pharisees because the bread of life has no substitute. And that's precisely what the Pharisees would like to offer, some substitute for the true bread of life. But what dissent offers is a bitter and visionless religion. It offers traditions that are acclimated not to the kingdom, not to the mission of Christ, but to the comfort of its fallen priests. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 9 and 10, Do you still not understand? Do you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the, for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? And this is fascinating. Jesus calls attention to the details of these stories. He says, okay, guys, Let's wake up a little bit here. Pay attention to what's been going on. Because what's more important than being fed is being gathered. That's what these stories are about. Now, most of the people are going to miss this. We, we know from the way it's related in some of the other Gospels. The people, the people will come back the next day looking for another free meal because they're missing the whole point. They think it's about being fed. Really didn't have anything to do with being fed. It was all about what got gathered. And what got gathered? When Jesus is feeding Jewish people, they collect up 12 baskets of leftovers. Now that's not too difficult a point to sort out. There are 12 tribes of Israel. And number 12 means everything to Israel. And so they collect up 12 baskets. What does it mean? It means that at the end of things, the ones who have not just received a meal, but have received my word and let it grow within them, 
they will be collected up. The remnant will be collected up. The remnant of Israel, of the 12 tribes of Israel, will be collected up and brought into my kingdom. And then when we fed the Gentiles, collected up seven baskets. Now this one's not quite as obvious to us. But when God brings his people into Canaan, guess how many Canaanite nations there are? Seven. And that number seven, from that point forward, becomes the symbol of all the Gentiles. So what is Jesus saying? At the end of things, the ones who have received my word within, they will be collected up. From the 12 tribes of Israel, I will collect up a remnant, 12 baskets, the, the leftovers. We are the leftovers. And then from among the Gentiles, I will collect up a remnant. From the seven nations of Canaan, I will collect up seven baskets of those who have found me. The most important question that we can ever ask ourselves is not how God has fed us, but how God has gathered.